We begin today in the tomb of a soldier. Yeah, not an unknown soldier. This guy is about as famous a military man, well, as the United States has ever produced. Then we briefly talk about the big guy on Mount Olympus, that is. Oh, and we also make a quick stop by the home of Caiaphas as well, all on the way to answering the question, what was Jesus's name? Welcome to the Sky Pilot Podcast that explores questions of faith, spirituality, and religion. I'm Dan Matthews, and I don't have all the answers, but I do enjoy the questions. Welcome to the podcast where every question is an invitation into a spiritual quest, and you're invited along for the journey. Just a quick reminder, this podcast is now available in video form. So if you want to check out my channel on YouTube, just look for Sky Pilot Faith Quest. It's easy to find. Okay, so the question for today is, what was Jesus's name? Excuse me, pardon me, is this like that question that you Americans seem to have a fondness for? Who's buried in Grant's tomb? One of those obvious questions that's meant to be tricky, but really isn't. Well, yeah, actually, I think it's a lot like that. When I was a kid, that question, the one about Grant's tomb, not about Jesus' name. Anyway, that would be asked as the kind of question that you might get and thinking too much, therefore, it would trip you up rather than just kind of taking the obvious answer. Okay, then where did that question come from? Why why did it become so popular? Yeah, for the answer, we've got to go back about 80 years. I'm not going to spend much time on this, but there was a comedy quiz series, both on television and on radio, here in the United States, back in the 1940s, hosted by none other than Groucho Marx, called You Bet Your Life. And evidently, this question was kind of a running gag on the show, and that's how it became so popular and famous. Anyway, this question reminds me of the type that, say, if your history teacher in school had asked it or, say, asked you when was the War of 1812 fought, you as a cautious student would probably hear the question and either out of nervousness not even listen to the information being handed to you in the question itself, or maybe you did, but you assumed that the obvious answer was, well, just too plain obvious, and so you weren't going to answer it that way. But the question about Jesus's name bears more resemblance to the question about Grant's tomb than you might think at first hearing. Why? Well, I'm really glad you asked. I don't think we did. Oh, huh. Well, you should have. So let's start with Grant and why the two questions are somewhat similar. Who's buried in Grant's tomb? Well, for people listening from other countries, Ulysses S. Grant was the military general who commanded the U.S. troops in battle against the breakaway southern states during our Civil War back in the 1860s. He was also elected later as president of the United States, but I think actually he's remembered more for his days as a general than as his tenure as a president. So the answer to who is buried in Grant's tomb is, well, Ulysses S. Grant, of course. But plot twist. Okay, it's really not much of a plot twist. So is his wife. So there are two people buried in Grant's tomb. Okay, and if you really want to be technical, the word buried means placed below the ground. So on a technical kind of word meaning level, no one is buried in Grant's tomb. The two of them are entombed there. So the point being is that the answer to the question is, first of all, not quite as obvious as you think, because if you want to go past the surface, you're going to be getting a little bit technical, which we're going to today as well. So back to our question for the day. What is Jesus's name? What was his name? No, 
no, let's ask a related question first. Why does it even matter? Okay, that's fair and a good place to start. Well, first, evidently, I will say there was a push by some people at some point within the world of Christianity to abandon the word that we, in the English-speaking word, use as the name, meaning the word Jesus, because it was said by these people to be derived from the word Zeus. As a matter of fact, there are those who have said that the word Jesus technically means Hail Zeus. Now, just as an aside, I'm guessing this comes from the same people who claim that the abbreviation Xmas is an attempt to remove Christ from Christmas. It, it's not, by the way. So you might think that the reason to look into Jesus's name is to delve into the Hail Zeus debate. I mean, now that you're aware of the Hail Zeus argument, you might think that's a good reason or a bad reason. But no, that has actually nothing to do with our motivation here and isn't correct anyway. Jesus and Zeus are linguistically unrelated. I know, I know that guy sitting in his basement did a lot of thinking to come up with the realization that Jesus and Hail Zeus sound similar to him. But, but despite his exhaustive research, yeah, they're, just trust me on this one. They're not related. Instead... My reason, first of all, is that I'm a person who likes to feel like I get close as I can to the historical reality of my faith. When Sarah and I had the opportunity and traveled to Israel, we've done it twice, my favorite places that we visited while we were there were not the shrines or the religious monuments. Those were built long after Jesus as a tribute to whatever happened in that particular location, but they didn't make me feel particularly connected to the story or or really more importantly, to the person at the heart of the story. So let me give you an example of what I'm trying to say. My favorite spot in all of Israel is actually at what was once the high priest's house at the time of Jesus. This was the place where Jesus was taken after his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, between the Garden of Gethsemane and the high priest's house is a very famous valley called the Kidron Valley. Now, this is important because Jesus was arrested, and to get to the high priest's home, where he was going to be presented by those who had arrested him, he had to be taken down into the valley and then climb back up to Caiaphas's home on the other side of the valley. There is an ancient stairway climbing up out of the valley that is, at least portions of it, are still there today and leads pretty much directly to Caiaphas's home. These stairs were almost certainly trodden by Jesus after his arrest, and I thought it was amazing to climb up these stairs knowing that these same stones were climbed by Jesus 2,000 years earlier. Unlike the first time I went to Israel, these steps were closed off the second time I was there, so I could no longer climb them, but you can certainly still see them. Then, at the location of Caiaphas's home, there is dug into the rock underneath what would have been his home, a small cellar room. And after study and excavation, it's understood that this was the place where the high priest would hold a prisoner when it was necessary. This was Jesus's holding cell the night before his crucifixion. I thought it was powerful to climb the stairs and stand in the cell and think about what he was thinking about and what was awaiting him in the morning. It made the story and life of Jesus seem less distant, much closer, and much more meaningful to me. 
So why does it matter if we know the exact name of Jesus? Well, it's not like knowing more accurately what his name was will make us better Christians or give us some sort of power that we would not have otherwise. No, there's no sort of incantational power to knowing his name. So does it matter? Well, no, not in the sense of being a better Christian, but it matters to me because in some ways, it just makes me feel like I've peeled back some of the shrouded layers of time and I feel a little closer to the real historical guy who walked the earth 2,000 years ago. And then also, when you start an endeavor like this, who knows what you're going to learn or experience along the way. Besides, if I ever manage to perfect that time machine that I'm working on and travel back in time, I figure I should at least know what his name well, what his name sounded like, you know, so I know which one was Jesus. How awful would it be to travel back in time and realize I got a selfie with the wrong guy? Okay, so let's talk about the languages at play because that's really important here. Hebrew was the language of the Old Testament. Greek was the language used to write the New Testament. Neither of these was the language that was spoken by Jesus and the disciples. That was Aramaic. And for the most part, the New Testament is in Greek with a few exceptions. An example is the moment when Jesus spoke as he was being crucified, which is not Greek, but Aramaic. And that phrase is Eli Eli Lama Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Matthew 27, 46. Now, clergy like me get very excited with phrases like this because it's likely that these places in Scripture where the Aramaic is used are not a translation, but the exact words of Jesus. Sort of. Let me explain the sort of. Let me talk about the difference between translation and transliteration. Most of us know what a translation is. It's when the words of one language with similar or same meaning, are used to replace the words of another language. When I was in Germany, I often needed to ask people to slow down when they were speaking because they can speak so fast. So the English phrase that I would like to say is slower, please. Translated into German, it is langsamer bitte, which is pretty much a direct translation of the two English words into German. But in the New Testament, when it uses the Aramaic that I mentioned, it's not translated into Greek, so you don't use the Greek words that mean the same things as the Aramaic words. That's normally what's happening in the New Testament. But these phrases that are the Aramaic, it is transliterated, meaning the author of the text uses the alphabet of one language to render a word from another. Now, the problem with transliteration is that often there is no substitution for a letter. Perhaps one language has an SH sound, as Aramaic did, but the other language does not, which would be true of Greek. Then the author making the transliteration makes the best substitution he can. So when the New Testament was written, the gospel authors had to give Jesus' name in Greek letters, in a Greek form, so they transliterated his name into Greek. So the Greek version of his name, transliterated from the original Aramaic, would be Jesus. Then eventually that transliteration was again transliterated ultimately into English to become Jesus. Well, actually, to be more accurate, it would probably be Aramaic, transliterated to Greek, Greek transliterated to Latin, Latin transliterated to English, and then we get Jesus. 
So the name Jesus is a little like the end result of playing that game telephone, you know, where one person whispers a phrase to someone who then whispers it to another person. And then going around a circle, it gets whispered all the way around the circle until you discover it turned into something it never was originally. So first, when we talk about the man who lived, gathered followers, was crucified, you know, Mary's son, we call him, at least in the English-speaking world, we call him Jesus. But there are two people, actually, in the Old Testament who have the same name as Jesus, but we translate their names as Joshua, not Jesus. So was Jesus' name actually Joshua, not Jesus? Well, remember that both names are transliterations from ancient languages, but but yeah, I think it's fair to say that the name Joshua is closer to Jesus's actual name than the word we use today in English, which is, of course is Jesus. So here's what we know. Jesus's name, meaning what he was called by his friends, is almost certainly the same, similar to that which is translated in the old from the Old Testament as Joshua. So if you read Joshua in the Old Testament, then Jesus in the New Testament, Probably they're pretty much the same. So, case closed, right? Yeah, we're getting closer, but we're not quite there yet. Just to be clear, even Joshua had some problems. I mean, there was no J sound in Aramaic or Hebrew. Jesus' name did not start with anything like a hard J sound. Now, within the Old Testament, there were two people named Joshua, but the ancient Hebrew texts don't show them as having the exact same name as each other. Even though we translate their names as being the same, they're both Joshua, but don't despair, they're similar. And I'll tell you kind of how we got from one to the other. Suffice it to say that there is an older and more traditional version of that name that's used in the stories in which we learn about Joshua who famously fought the Battle of Jericho, and it is Yehoshua, Yehoshua. But it seems that this version of the name in later times was shortened and simplified, and we also translate this newer version as Joshua. The name was shortened to a simpler form from Yehoshua to Yeshua. So Yehoshua became Yeshua. And this is something we still have today, right? I mean, I was given the name Daniel at my birth, but was called Danny throughout my youth, although Danny isn't actually any shorter than Daniel, is it? So how about Becca being a shortened version of Rebecca? It's closer to that. Here's the problem. When we take the original Hebrew letters of the name Joshua, or more accurately, Yeshua, there was no vowel at the end. The last letter in the Hebrew name was more of a guttural sound and had no ah sound to it, at least in Old Testament times. So that guy who fought the Battle of Jericho, who we call Joshua, would have had no ah sound, ah, at the end of his name. So on our search for Jesus's name, there are very few examples of any kind of writing from the first century, from Jesus's time, that has the longer version of the name, Yehoshua. We just can't find much of that. But there are a number of writings from that period that contain the shorter, and at that point, the more modern version, Yeshua. 
And it actually gets fairly interesting at this point because it wasn't unusual for some of these writings to be contracts, legal contracts, in which the same contract was created in several different languages so all the parties could have one in their own language, which for us means that we get to see what the Greek versions were being used in place of the Hebrew or Aramaic names. All of this leads to our being fairly certain that Jesus' name is Yeshua. Yeshua was transliterated as Jesus into Greek, and Greek didn't have an SH sound, so it substituted the S instead of the SH. Now, we are just about there now. As Hebrew began to experience the effects of Greek, it later picked up the vowel ending at the end of words that would not have been present earlier. So all we have to do is know when this change happened, and we have the accurate pronunciation of Jesus's real name. Well, Jesus lived, unfortunately, in the middle of this transition. So what most scholars believe is that if you used my time machine... Yeah, scholars believe about your time machine, that is. Yeah, oh yeah, I have scholars asking me all the time if it's ready yet. If it were, and you went back in time and heard Jesus' name pronounced by his family and followers, it would have been without the A-H sound at the end. On the other hand, when he traveled to larger cities, they would have said his name with a more urbanized and modern pronunciation. So the truth is, there were probably three pretty distinct pronunciations that were used by people when they spoke his name. Some places would have said his name as Yeshua, but that would have been probably the least common. Other places with Greek influence would have said Yeshu. Yeshu. And finally, and this is the most difficult one to pronounce, of course, so I will give you my version and then I'll let you hear somebody who actually has studied these languages for years say it. So finally, his family and friends and Jesus himself probably would have said something like Yeshu, Yeshu. I'll let you listen to the expert say his version now. Yeshu, Yeshu. So congratulations, you stuck around all the way to the end, and now you know the way Jesus' name was pronounced in his own time. Okay, that's all for today. So what do you think? What have you learned from this? What's your takeaway? First, for me, and at the simplest level, it's nice to know what people would have called him, what his name would have sounded like 2,000 years ago. And it's interesting to know that the word Jesus... Well, isn't even particularly close, is it? Second, I think there's a useful learning here as well. When we study scripture, can we get back to the original words, intent, meaning, or even pronunciation? Well, yes, I think sometimes we can get remarkably close, but it's not always easily done. For me, this kind of exercise helps me realize the danger of reading the text in a vacuum and thinking I alone have seen something no one else has, like the idea that Jesus sounds like Hail Zeus. All of the discoveries I've talked about regarding his name have taken centuries of scholars pooling their learnings to get to what we know today. Now it's your turn. Tell me what you think. Was this interesting for you? I'd love to know what you connected with in all of this. You can send me an email. As always, I would love to hear from you. Also, if you have questions for a future episode, I'm always open to your ideas and your suggestions. Just email me at dan at skypilot, S-K-Y-P-I-L-O-T, dan at skypilot.zone. And on your spiritual journey, may you ask questions, seek answers, and boldly go 
wherever the quest takes you. Thanks for joining us here today and being part of the SkyPilot Faith Quest community. This is a great place to ask questions you wouldn't feel comfortable or safe asking in other places. And remember, the sign of a strong faith, solid religion, or healthy spiritual journey is not certainty, but that you keep asking questions.